1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. We are really pleased on this episode of Rector's Cupboard to be joined by Leah Costomo of Arasha Canada, an environmental organization. And uh, we have that interview in just a few minutes. But I thought that off the top, we would speak just a little bit among the hosts here about activism in general. And so sitting here at the table with me are Allison Williams. Hello. Co-host Amanda Mina. Hello. Producer at all. And of course, our cupboard master, Ken Bell. Hello, everyone. And we're going to, right off the top, hand it over to our cupboard master to open the cupboard and tell us what we're drinking this afternoon. Great. We are back at Okanagan Spirits, and we're drinking one of their gins. It's called their Evolve Gin. It's a legacy project. It's a fundraising project for gender equality issues around the world. So it sort of fits in with our uh, topic that we have. Uh, the first thing you'll notice about this gin is its color. The, it's not it's the a, normal clear gin. It isn't. It's a beautiful blue gin. And one of the things they do with it is they infuse it with a flower that when you mix it with other things like uh, citrus or uh, tonic, you'll notice that it changes color. It changes to a beautiful sort of lavender, lilac sort of color. And it's wonderful. Uh, one of the things that's nice about their gins is they are gluten-free and so if you if that's a thing for you, uh, their uh, gins begin in the apple orchard. So that's what they use as their base. So go ahead and give a taste to mm. the We have the just gin, a straight, straight gin here is yeah. the first yeah. drink. And it's, it's, it's blue. Yeah, it's, it's nice. It's smooth. Mm-hmm. There's botanical flavoring in it. Uh, there, It's just a nice, but there's a good flavor to it. There's a mm. good strong flavor. That's really good. Because uh, mm. a lot of gins, you know, they're kind of weak. Gin can be particular tastes. Am I it right can. in saying that? Like some yeah. people mm. don't like some really good gins. They prefer other, like there's They prefer things that are, yeah. Some Well, and some people prefer Budweiser beer to good beer. Whoa, uh, I feel oh, like that was whoa. unnecessarily judgy. I was just going to say I don't often like gin, but I enjoy Ooh, this one. Oh, good. I'm glad. Whoa. That you do. This, I, I want to move on to the gin and tonic. And then there's the gin and tonic, of course. I prefer gin and soda uh, just because I really like the flavor of gin. And I Unlike our friend Amanda. <laughs> unlike, unlike our friend Amanda. Apparently. Uh, so you, you really know, it it. But it's really mm. nice. And it mm. goes for a great, uh, it's, it's a good cause. And uh, it's great gin. So if you've not checked out Okanagan Spirits, go ahead and check them out. Awesome. See what you can order from there. Thank great. you so, and now, thank you. Now thank you so much, talk. Covered Master Ken. Uh, off the top here, before we hand it over to the interview, um, I thought I'd introduce a concept of activism and some potential generational differences in how activism is perceived. And this past Sunday, so just a few days ago as we record now, there was a cultural event that had kind of reach around the world, which doesn't often happen anymore, we might What, what could you be referring to, Todd? There was a television interview. <laughs> An interview did this? Oprah Winfrey interviewed... The Oprah? Yeah. Queen Oprah. Meghan Markle. 
Meghan Markle. That's yes. right. Mm-hmm. And then Prince Harry. Mm-hmm. No last name, just Prince Harry. No, I know there's well, a last name, but anyway. Uh, Prince Harry joined the interview later. And then the interview had all kinds of repercussions afterwards and during different kind of opinions. Some people saying this is fantastic. So I sent you guys an article uh, in the last couple of days from Telegraph uh, newspaper in the UK mm-hmm. where the, the author of this article is millennial. And they're identifying this generational difference that she's saying um, people like myself and my friends, we kind of see Meghan Markle as a bit of a hero. Uh, people like my mom and her friends uh, see the opposite. They see her as potentially self-centered or some other things that, well, so or, I thought, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, the, art- the article has a little bit more nuance than that. Like they say, like, while while they may understand or, or sympathize for, for the struggles that, that, Meghan Markle's had they don't necessarily like how she's gone about with this interview it feels like it's airing dirty laundry or that she should have known what she was signing up for it's a tough family to get into there's rules and regulations um but I I do think that there are there could be some generational divides and I mean you even hear it in, in conversations about mental health like growing up I don't remember and that was in the the 90s early 2000s really talking that much about mental health problems um, and or even that being a cultural thing, the way that it is or now. If you did, you, you kept it in the family. Like it's there, a secret, there was a sense with that. So I feel yeah. like like my generation, there there isn't. I think there has been a lot of work done to try to destigmatize mental health problems. Mm-hmm. There, there's th- that's kind of the thread I'm kind of trying to get to is that if people see Meghan Markle as a hero, there's a sense of she's speaking about things that are actually going on. This will help potentially other people mm-hmm. to share these things. Some people have been greatly damaged by their families or by their extended families. And rather than not talking about that, we might actually help people if some people with some status can talk about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're saying, and I think in many ways, rightfully so, like way to go to her for, for bringing this out because this is possibly going to help other people. The pushback from the older generation or di- from the other view is to say, no, she's just airing dirty laundry. As you said uh, in the article, it mentions, it says older generations value privacy much more than those of us who've grown up oversharing on social media. Their love, their love for duty is equal to our respect for breaking mental health taboos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, what's, what I'm trying to consider is what each generation has to offer that there's something mm. that to be understood in terms of what activism means and helping other people means that we can learn from from both generations rather than to just take a position. Anyway, any, any other input on the interview and what your reflection was? I, I thought, <coughs> I didn't see the actual interview, but the, the reaction to the paper or to the article itself, yeah, I got that sense too, that it is this difference of there's, there's some um, pride in, in the good sense of talking about these things that in the past were uh, you, you didn't you didn't mention you kept it in the family it could be things like alcohol abuse or physical abuse within the family it could be uh, LGBTQ issues it could be uh, mental health issues you kept these things to yourself you didn't talk about them publicly and hopefully they quietly go away and we have a generation that's now saying no the the best way to deal with these things is to speak about them. Uh, publicly so that other people feel safe having those conversations. Um, I, the idea of duty, I think, is something that also perhaps the younger generation doesn't quite, uh, the, the millennials don't quite see in the same way mm-hmm. that you, you, you just got to stick. It's more important to stick with your, with your duty, your task, 
than it is to make any changes. And so it's also a bit going against, standing up to some institutions that think they don't need to change or they can't mm -hmm. change. And if this COVID season has taught us anything, actually institutions can change. I mean, they certainly did a lot school of that systems last year. change, government yeah, systems yeah. change, churches change. Uh, a lot of things change, be, you know, because of something out external, but they can change. So I think it's a bit of uh, both. Amanda, you saw the interview. I remember we were watching it at the same time, kind of texting back and <laughs> yeah. forth a little bit. Uh, what what struck you in there? Because I, I remember watching, I thought, oh, this isn't going to be much. Like it's, a, you know, the royal family mm -hmm. kind of person being interviewed. And But I, I thought it was actually fairly potentially consequential. I, I think so too. I mean, one of the things that struck me was just o Oprah's ability to interview. She's really Was good. incredible, right? Like that that should be the model that everybody uses um, yeah. of just kind of compassionately poking and pushing for people to right. to say more. Um, but, you know, I, I have to agree with Ken and what he was saying, like, you know, the, the older generation just didn't, you know, talk about those things. But really what's embedded in that is shame. I think. Yeah. And so hopefully what this does is again with ending the stigma of mental health and stuff is getting rid of the shame of like, I'm not okay. And saying that I'm not okay. Um, yeah. and that's something that I think a younger generation is doing. Um, and maybe not just about mental health, but a myriad of other things that like it's, yeah, we're going to be talking shame. about, you know, climate change and environmental matters and stuff yeah. in this episode. There's, I think th the question that's in my mind is over all of this is, is there kind of social progress in terms of humanity? In other words, mm. do generations now think better about people in the world than previously? I would, I would like have to we have so. we made any progress? Um, that doesn't mean we can't learn from previous generations. But one of the things that I think is unfair to younger people is that I see them getting criticized for being too selfish and too activist at the same time. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, how can how can that happen? They're literally trying to take up you know every or most causes. Mm -hmm. Uh, but also they're being seen as self-centered. And I'm going, well, that those two don't really line up. And they are young people. They are finding their mm -hmm. ways. And so I think there are some hopeful ways that maybe we can bridge some of these divides and realize the older generation does have something to say about duty and kind of, you know, and at times toughing it out, which well, does matter in a life as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and I think that there's something to be said for, I, I'm glad that conversations are happening. And, and I think that it's important to for people who, who see things differently to have conversations. Because um, when, we, when we live inside of echo chambers and the only people we listen to and the only people that we relate to are people that think like us and you know function the way that we do and process information the way that we do, we... Well, we, we just, reinforce our own exactly. beliefs. Exactly. And yeah. so what I'm hoping is that you can have people who perhaps are in an older generation here, you don't have to be ashamed of this or you didn't, it wasn't okay that you were treated this way. Um, and people from younger generations, maybe just say like, uh, it, like understand that, that there are times where somebody made a different decision than maybe what you would make. Right. There are people who, who they don't want to talk about everything. Um, and sometimes I think that that can be a fault of younger generations to go, but, but you have to, or, and, and I think that there, there's just, I'm hopeful that, that we can learn to have 
better conversations. Cause I've seen a lot of stuff going back and forth and people just becoming entrenched on either like Harry and Megan were terrible in doing this, or they were like the best people ever. And I'm like, yeah, well, they are just people. The like they, they <laughs> are actually just people. Like, I don't think that they're it's either incredibly what? heroic or incredibly terrible. I think that there's probably some realistic mean, like median in the center. And ultimately that whole conversation with Oprah took place because clearly conversations weren't happening. Yeah. Whether that be in the palace or right. So there's that breakdown right there to cause the need at some point later on for Oprah to sit down with them and have this, you know. Yeah. It, you know, as we move to the interview, uh, there's the other piece of this that struck me was any facade that we try to maintain. Mm -hmm. And we are all coming out of church experiences and maybe pushing away from evangelicalism a little bit. And we all have. Every listener had, has the facades that at sometimes they serve a purpose. But facades that are kind of kept up over time tend to tend to lead to a lot of damage and not saying a monarchist or not or anti-monarchist or whatever but the royal family exists on facade it, it's not you know it's it's made up of all these things and so there probably is something healthy about saying wait a minute these are just people in a family with all these pressures yeah. all these other added pressures and and we can probably learn from this we recommend listening to the interview and and seeing mm -hmm. and some and following some of the uh but we're going to be um uh interviewing Leah Costomo now and speaking generally about another issue around activism that's uh, environmental matters. And uh, we're, we're really happy to do that. Thanks, you guys, for Great. joining. Thank you. So we're pleased to have joining us today Leah Costomo. Leah is co-founder of Arasha Canada, a Christian environmental organization. She's an author and conference speaker with a background in education. And she has a book called Planted, A Story of Creation, Calling, and community. Leah, great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. Oh, Leah, it's it's really great to meet you. I, I've heard you speak before, and so I'm really excited to talk to you today. Mm -hmm. um, could you give us a bit of an outline of the various approaches uh, to nature and creation in regards to Christian history and Christian theology? Like, how, how did you get started in that, and, and what have you seen as different avenues there? Yeah. Can I, can I qualify? Do you mean for my own life or just historically like the Christian approach? Give us historically first. I, I, th I think let's do both. Like I, <laughs> I'd love like some, okay, some I, history I, on it and then kind of your own personal, your own personal um, yeah. understanding of it. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, historically it's interesting because when you look at Jesus, he lived most of his life outside um like you never have these pictures or stories of Jesus in the gospels where he's like he was really tired so he threw his prayer shawl over his head and yeah. hunkered in the corner to pray <laughs> it was always like he got up early in the morning and went outside <laughs> and everybody was always like where's Jesus um so I think when we think of historically we usually think oh okay what did the monastic tradition what did the reformation right. you know mm. but if we go right back to the beginning of the Christian history you have um, Jesus, like an outdoorsman, a guy who's always outside. Mm. Um, so I think I've taken that as an inspiration for my own life. I grew up, um, I grew up in a, not necessarily a religious household, but became, I would say an evangelical Christian in my teens. And through that process, kind of thought there was this bifurcation, this separation between what's spiritual and then what's just kind of secular life. And all of creation was ironically included in secular yeah. life to the point where in university, my campus chaplain said, 
like, oh, what do you think of, of doing after graduation? And I said, um, I said, I think I want to be a marine biologist, not knowing that you needed to take stats classes. So I, I couldn't <laughs> have done it because I couldn't have passed the classes, but, but I love the ocean and I love the creatures in the ocean. And she said, oh, you know, that's not a really Christian vocation or something like that. And I remember feeling crestfallen and then realizing like, oh, I have to do like be a teacher or a missionary or Mm. a pastor or something. Um, And it wasn't until later actually um, meeting the people in Arasha and studying at Regent College that I saw like, oh, there's the tradition Mm. um, of loving both God and the earth. Like Mm. that's possible. And it's not only possible for people who are biblical, like want to have their faith, like kind of be biblical based. That's actually in the Bible. There's over a thousand verses that mention Mm -hmm. creation in the Bible. Um, Yeah. So then it's just been now I found kindred spirit people (laughs) all over the place um, in the, in the Christian faith and in theology. That's Um, another conversation. Yeah, no, we, we've, we've mentioned this entity, Arasha, a few times. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about that, about the organization, as well as how you came to be involved in it? Yeah. So Arasha, it's a really weird name. It's a Portuguese name. It means the rock in Portuguese. And Arasha started back in 1983 in Portugal um, as kind of this new form of Christian mission where um, caring for the earth, the kind of theme verse, the inspiration verse is uh, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So this way of living out the Christian Mm -hmm. faith as um, the calling towards stewardship, being Mm -hmm. totally legitimate for Christian mission. Um, So since that time, Arasha has spread to 20 countries around Mm -hmm. the world that um, that have national entities. So we are one of those in Canada, and we started here in BC um, with the Environmental Center, and then we're donated another property, uh, this beautiful 40-acre property down in South Surrey, and then we've spread, actually, we have a center now in Manitoba mm-hmm. and a project in Hamilton, Ontario, also. Oh, that, that's so yeah. awesome. Um, yeah. So I, are, are you still working with? Arasha or what are, what, what fills your days right now? What fills my days? Um, yeah, it's funny because most of the people who work with Arasha are like farmers or educators or, um, doing conservation science in the rivers. And I'm actually none of those things. (laughs) So I'm kind of a freeloader. (laughs) Um, so I am right now, I've done communications and different things, but right now I'm the spiritual care coordinator, which means I offer spiritual direction. I offer retreats because we have a beautiful... Yeah, um, you have a retreat center there. That yeah, we use, have right? a little guest house. Yeah. It's not a big thing, but it's 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 actually a heritage property. Actually, we know Surrey, someone but... who's there right now, but anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> so people can go on retreat and then you're available yeah. then to have conversation with them. Yeah, and, exactly. Is, is that role also for... The staff and other visitors there yeah okay. yeah yeah so i'm available to staff and and visitors mm. so you talk about your kind of long-standing love of the outdoors and being drawn to that when when you were in, in university and hearing you speak on other things how have you connected the outside with um with yourself like with 
with uh, either your your spiritual health, your mental health? What? How do those things interplay? Mm, yeah, um, there's this fascinating book um, called um, "Your Brain on Nature," mm-hmm. and it's you know hearkening back to those those all those studies and stuff. Your brain on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> so this is your brain on nature. And all these studies about um, like how walking in the woods lowers um, cortisol in the brain and there's like these aromatic chemicals that come off of trees that produce happy hormones, serotonin Mm -hmm. and stuff. And so I don't know if it's spiritual or if it's just biological, but I find that that I need to be outside every day, Mm -hmm. like at least Mm -hmm. for a walk and not just a walk in a neighborhood, but like a walk through trees. That's one of the gifts of COVID is that we, my daughter found this awesome little walk down to the ocean Mm -hmm. from uh, the upper part of White Rock that I lived here for like 18 years. I didn't even know it existed. (laughs) Um, So the recalibration, I think, um, it just it makes me think of Jesus's words, you know, consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air, that that wasn't just a metaphor that I think um, I think it's it's something that he probably did. He probably considered the lilies of the field and the because he wouldn't tell us to do something that he and he himself wasn't doing um, and that there is a real spiritual and maybe even biological reorientation that happens even if it's just like five minutes of being outside. I was just, I was just reading something today. Um, it was some famous writer, like super famous writer. And she said, um, and she's not, she wasn't known as a Christian writer or anything. Some of you might know who this is. Anyway, uh, I just came across this little line and, and she said pretty much the one thing that Jesus said that we should do that she's done is consider the lilies. (laughs) She's she's done that, (laughs) you know, like that's how, and there is this kind of, as soon as you walk outside, right? This, yeah. this, that, I, I mean, I guess you can go through, you can, people can blitz through without connecting there, but yeah. there is something to do with like attention and prayer mm-hmm. and being outside that has to, how do you, um, cause you're working while you're in an, an organization that's like a Christian environmental organization, you're not working exclusively with churches or with Christian people or with, you're working with anybody and everybody Mm -hmm. I would imagine school groups and whatever else Um, how do you see them kind of encountering these more grand themes or whether it's the transcendent or the spiritual what does that look like um well it's you know if it is like a school group of course like a public school we can't be overt at all in our Christian faith we are just welcoming them into the to the wonders of creation. And then whatever that wonder works in their own heart is, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes we're not privy to it because we're not having them fill out surveys when they leave. (laughs) But that said, um, I have at times interviewed kids as they're leaving, like for a little article or something. And it's amazing, especially the kids from um, more uh, like the Wally area of Surrey, which is a, is a more, um, or I don't know what the proper term is these days, but an inner city kind of area. So a lot of these kids will have never really walked in the woods. And even just walking on the path down to the pond, our educator noticed that for a while, every kid that went down would be like, whoa, whoa, I'm going to fall off the cliff. And this is just this gradual little path. And she realized later, she thought, do they have inner ear problems or what's going on? (laughs) And she realized later they had never walked down a grassy slope. 
like these kids had only walked on sidewalks. And so interviewing them after, like somebody could just say, this is just normal human, but I think there's something spiritual to it. Um, these kids were like, I felt like an adventurer. Yeah. Like they're just taking a little walk through the yeah. woods and un- lifting up a log and seeing the sow bugs underneath. And to them, they felt like this was thrilling. <laughs> and there was something about they felt like powerful. I think what they were yeah. feeling was like a connection to their place in creation, like a hopefulness mm-hmm. of being a creature in creation where most of their life they're lived in front of screens or, you know, in school, which there's, you know, good things can happen in those places, but, but they're divorced from their like essential, um, the stuff yeah. of being human matter, you know, must be wonderful to, to see that, right. To, yeah. you say they don't fill out surveys, but you can, you can kind of see when someone's seeing something. Mm-hmm. when they're feeling something and sometimes they're going to holler i'm an adventurer but it's the ones also that are really quiet but that yeah. you can observe some kind of and and it's just and and i guess we won't know what they're experiencing but it might be something right that yeah. i was thinking of the three transcendentals like goodness beauty and truth because mm. uh, i'm thinking of a couple of friends that i have who live in richmond and they take uh, so they walk along the dike there and there's a lot of wildlife and birds and one of them is richard topping who you know um oh, pres- yeah. principal mm-hmm. of vst uh, so him and another friend of mine, they take a lot of photos, right? Mm-hmm. Just striking photos of eagles mm. and hummingbirds yeah, and amazing. coyotes. And I, w- I was thinking about their their photos, their work, although it's hobby for both of them. And it seems that one of the first things we noticed in nature is beauty. Mm-hmm. But but not only, right? Like how do you, I, I'm interested from someone who helps others with this, that it's it's wonderful to notice beauty and out of those three things goodness beauty and truth i remember reading something uh, at a time when people were talking this the writer was talking about how we can still talk about god or anything transcendent mm. and goodness and truth can lose their currency in culture but beauty seems to be something we can still talk about mm-hmm. so i guess my question is how do you kind of ob- observe people noticing that beauty but then noticing something far from beautiful Yeah, two quotes come to mind. And I don't know who said the first one Um, is either Richard Rohr or John O'Donohue, (laughs) Um, who I think would be good friends if if they could be, if John O'Donohue was still alive. But um, one of them said, um, you know, we talk a lot about the problem of pain or the problem of suffering, but we don't often talk about the problem of beauty. Like, mm. why is even beauty there? Like, what? it doesn't make any sense. Like, why do our, why does our soul respond with this, like, feeling of expansiveness? And, you know, why are even bumblebees attracted to beautiful mm. flowers? Mm. You know, like, why is that flower beautiful, not for us, but for the bee, right. to attract <laughs> the bee? Um, so, so that's one thing. And then the other, the other quote is to kind of hold these two things in tandem. Like beauty just exists. It's not just in the eye of the beholder. It is like uh, uh, what you said, the transcendental. Yeah. Is it a Good, thing? <laughs> goodness, beauty, and truth. Like the three yeah. beauty is just there. Um, yeah. And then on the truth side. So uh, there's this, a fellow named, um, um, his head, who, his name just went out of my head. But anyway, Sand County Almanac, and he said, um, the liability of an ecological education 
is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Oh, wow. So the more you wow. know, like as an yeah. environmentalist, the more you see like what is not there or the more you see the degradation. Like a person who hasn't studied much about um, biodiversity, for right. example, will walk out and go like, oh my gosh, there's so many birds singing. Like, oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah. But the ornithologist will know that we've lost right. literally 60%. They're aware of the absence. Of all the birds in the world in the last 40 years. Um, so it's this it's this holding of like sorrow. It's like lament and joy. Mm-hmm. Like really the well beauty brings joy. The reality of everything we've lost brings lament, but they're held together. Um, and they kind of enrich each other, balance each other somehow. Yeah. Um, um, you mentioned early on um, Jesus and nature and what do you, what is it that you find interesting about how Jesus interacted with and taught from nature? Like, hmm. well, I think it's interesting that um, if you look at the Psalms, I had to give a talk once at this conference called Simply Jesus. And um, we were only allowed to, to use Jesus's parables as our, um, as our topic. And so they said, okay, you're doing the environment. And I'd given talks on like Christian environmental stuff before, mm. but I always used the Old Testament, like Noah's covenant, right. God's no covenant with mm-hmm. Noah, not only to people, but to all of creation, right. like the all rainbow, the creatures are included yeah. in the covenant. Yeah. <laughs> and then Paul says stuff in Romans. So I was like, oh, no, only Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so I just started looking at the parables. And, uh, and it's so fascinating. Like when you look at what he uses, it's just all outside stuff. It's like wheat and yeah. wolves and foxes and um, fields and flowers and rocks and <laughs> um, and then a lot of what he does is all very earthy like the using spit and dirt to heal yeah. um, preaching outside there's a few of his stories that are like the widows might like a coin mm-hmm. you know that's yeah. a man-made thing but most of the stuff is outdoor stuff and then of course I think the consider the lilies and yeah. consider the birds um you know, it would be handy if, if it was like for our like analytic minds, if it was more obvious, like, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's like, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. Right. Like it would have been great if he said, you heard, you know, rape and pillage the earth, but I say to you, right, right, right. care for the animals. Right. So unfortunately he never said anything so explicit. It's more like he just lived hmm. in right relation to creation. Um, yeah. And how have you seen some of that lived out um, in in Christian expressions that, that you've come across? I, th- I think of, uh, I, I went to a private school and so evolution was very strangely taught to me. Um, <laughs> and uh, as well as, as I, I think of you, you get dominion theology versus stewardship and how, how do you interpret or come across some of those ideas? Yeah, well, it's interesting just in the 20 years that we've been active in Canada, we've seen a shift. Like I think it used to fall along, you know, for lack of a better term, which is not super helpful, but conservative liberal mm-hmm. or conservative progressive, like the conservatives were all, um, you can't be an environmentalist. They would, yeah, yeah, we can't yeah. be environment. We yeah. can't even love creation. <laughs> um, and there's still, I think in the States, it's much more 
polarized, mm. like my friends in the States, and I'm from the States, mm -hmm. so I experienced that. But I think in Canada, there's a much more openness now, especially even within more what I would call traditional circles that are trying to be very um, adhering to the to the message of the Bible, that because um, the theme of creation care of stewardship goes straight from Genesis 2 all the way to Revelation, I'm making all things new, not I am making all new things, uh, but I am renewing creation. I'm not like trashing mm -hmm. it or you're trashing it and I'm just going to make something new. <laughs> um, so I think that now there's this, we've experienced at least with Arasha in Canada, even within more conservative circles and certainly within more progressive circles, an opening up to, um, to the Christian faith being um, just more integrated, more holistic, more about mm -hmm. not just a message for your soul after you die, but a message of justice for, you know, BIPOC people, a message of justice mm -hmm. for creation, a message of justice for those who've suffered. Um, I don't know if I'm really answering I, your question. I was question, listening. But... Oh, I think so. Very much. I, I think so. I, I was listening to an interview actually that Arasha put out um, recently. It was with Jason Biasi. He was interviewing a professor from Durham University. Did yeah, you see that? Yeah, and I haven't listened to it yet. I've so heard it's, what's, it's amazing. Is her name Carmody Gray or something? I, I yeah, just Carmody Gray. Uh, yeah, yeah, we got one of the names today. Um, <laughs> uh, and she speaks about, um, and she's obviously speaking for Arasha on this on these same topics and kind of the, the, yeah. the environmentalism and creation and and she speaks about a time where she read an encyclical encyclical by Pope Francis yeah and how she was in the middle of working on PhD or something she had something to write and she she started reading this and she had to keep reading it and keep reading it and keep reading it and she found herself in tears because mm. she found someone and someone who has some obviously huge influence expressing instead of those polarized polarized views where she yeah. said that often it's either it's e either you're for the environment and not so much for humanity or you're mm -hmm. for you know the way that often conservative put it you're for the human and then that means you can't be really for the environment and the way he expressed it in this encyclical was yeah. it's both yeah. it's both the humanity and the and so it is encouraging to see some of this. And, and obviously, Arasha is a large part of that, right? That mm -hmm. you have this place where, and you can go into churches and you can speak and you can talk to people and help move their views and change their views. And it's a fantastic thing. So mm -hmm. um, there's a lot out there. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll put it in the episode notes. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, can you tell us about any particularly kind of... Um, striking things that you've learned in your in your time i guess particularly with the rasha i know that this the story of the fish coming back is one i've heard before but what what things kind of help give you give you hope and and cause to to keep progressing forward with things yeah in relation i mean i'm happy to tell the fish story because it is yeah it is a good story but um yeah, Would you like me to tell the fish yeah, story? Yeah, a lot of do. our listeners wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as a lead into it, to answer your question, is what gives me hope is the young people. I mean, mm. I sound like I'm ancient. I'm 50, <laughs> okay. but I'm feeling old these days. Um, <laughs> the youngins that come. <laughs> um, but we have, we have uh, people who are between the age of 18 to like 30 usually, but we've had some as old as like 48 come and do an internship. So they spend three months 
and they participate in one of our program areas, so conservation education or agriculture. And they get to do hands-on work. So it's not just like pretend. It's like they really have to grow vegetables. They really have to do surveys on species and stuff. And then they go off and start their own little organic farms or they mm-hmm. get Very PhDs cool. or, you know, it's just it's just so humbling and amazing that they are leveraging and some not just replicating, like taking it further than we would even imagine. And they're all over the world right now. Mm. So one of those interns um, was a young gal, 19 years old, um, Audrey, um, and she was doing um, a survey on invasive species in our little pond. And we had this idea, (laughs) foolishly, (laughs) uh, that we were going to drain the pond because it was man-made, because it's only invasive species. So those aren't ones that normally would live there. They're introduced by humans. And then we'd let the heron pick off all the invasive species, and then we'd refill the pond and put in native species. Ah. This big conservation is kind of old school. I don't think we'd ever do that now. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so this gal, quite kind of charismatic in her faith, really um, close relationship with God, woke up one morning and felt like she heard God saying to her, I have a surprise for you today. So this is an obvious, this was evidently an ordinary thing for her to hear God speak like this. <laughs> it wouldn't be so ordinary for me. Anyway, she goes through her day. At one point she goes down to the pond to check the fish trap where they were, where they were take, monitoring for invasive species. And this is the last day, like the pond's going to be drained the next day. So it's the last, one of the last checks of the trap. As she's bending down to pull the trap out of the water, she feels like she hears kind of in the inner sanctum of her mind, here's your surprise. So she pulls the trap out. She sees this fish that looks too big to even fit through the opening of the trap. And she knows like, ooh, this is something special. <laughs> and, and she's telling, this is about a week later, she's telling me the story of all this. We're sitting at lunch because we have community lunches every day, or we used to when before it was COVID. Mm. And, uh, and I, at this part of the story, I'm like, wow, Audrey, that's so amazing. But actually, secretly, I'm thinking, like, this girl's kind of a wacko. <laughs> like, this is so weird. Um, and I think I was thinking it was so weird because, first of all, like, to think that God cares about, you know, big creatures like panda bears or tigers or, you know, like, other endangered species is is understandable, but this little fish that she found was actually an endangered species called the Salish sucker. And it's only in um, like 10 or so watersheds in the entire world. And it hadn't been seen in ours since the 1970s. Wow. It was considered extinct in our little water system. And this little 19 year old intern finds it like not even a seasoned biologist. (laughs) So my first thought was like, well, this is so weird. Like that's weird. Like that, god of the universe would care about this little sucker fish and then the second thing that i thought was weird was just like god talking to somebody you know like like i just thought that was weird but then you know upon reflection i thought like well i'm a contemplative i feel like i experience god but it's so weird in somebody else's life you know but not in your own life you can hear god but for somebody else to hear god is just bizarre Um, so upon further reflection, you know, I thought like, really, who is the wacko? Who is the weirdo in this Mm. story? Like, 
is it maybe God? Is God the <laughs> sure. wacko? Um, a God who's like concerned about a little sucker fish, a God who's concerned about a, a young 19 year old intern. Um, and so much of yeah. it is the words we put on it, right? That I yeah. heard God say to me, you know, I have a surprise <laughs> for you today. Right. And so then <laughs> we can kind of roll our eyes and, um, in terms of theology, there's this, like, when I think of astonishment, which you mm. you deal with a lot, and you just told a story dealing with some kind of astonishment. Um, one of my favorite theologians, Karl Barth, warned against theologians who could no longer be astonished. Mm. And and he said, actually, that's a key for, if, if you can, he said, if you can accomplish the feat of no longer being astonished, then you should find some other kind of occupation other than theology because you'd, it would be better for you and for the world if you took up some, something else. And, yeah. uh, you know, to me, when you, when you tell that story, there's a story of being open to astonishment, to being open to surprise, whatever that means and whatever language you, you know, people would put on that and what a beautiful gift that is. Um, now, speaking of that, the Salish sucker, we were talking about beauty before. Oh. Not That's the not prettiest a beautiful fish. fish, right? I just say I've seen you have. A, I've seen the picture. <laughs> it's a perfect name for it, the Salish <laughs> sucker. I think so because yeah. <laughs> it's now. Did anything else come of that? What does you have to do if you find it endangered oh, species? Oh yeah, yeah. No, that pond is it. not being yeah. drained. Yeah, no, <laughs> pond is not being drained. In fact, we got a lot of funding um, <laughs> from the Pacific Salmon Foundation. Wow. From, oh, that's great. Um, yeah kind of all levels of government, it kind of put us on the conservation map. And so part of that funding, wow. we went to create like a whole wetland around the pond and a whole breeding channel actually for Salish sucker. So oh, we, so they aren't really breeding right there that we found their breeding spot up the river, but it opened up a lot of, um, of more possibilities and, and a little bit of funding from the government. And do you still have any contact with Audrey? Well, funny enough, she works for us now. Oh, that's oh, That's a perfect ending to the story. Yeah. If you so call good. the office, you might get her on the phone. Oh. <laughs> is she still trying to? Yeah. You, you should say to her, like, is there any more surprise? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, so as we move to end, what what's some practical advice that you would give us, uh, people listening on, I mean, some of it could be obvious, but people who are saying, I have a there's a dearth of this in, in my life. I'm missing that interaction mm -hmm. with nature. Uh, how do you tell people, here's how to start? Yeah. Um, gosh, I would just say, um, well, the question, it depends if like, how do I care for creation or how do I just connect with creation? Go, go with connect first. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the first step actually of caring mm -hmm. for creation is to exactly. connect. So I, I think set the bar really low, like, five minutes a day outside doing nothing but just observing. So just like, what sense do I want to choose today? Today I'm choosing sound. I'm just mm -hmm. going to go out and just try to listen to birds for five minutes. Or today I'm choosing sight. So I'm going to go look for like the crocuses are coming up. I'm going to go look for That's crocuses beautiful. or whatever. Yeah. The latest little bud is coming out or smell like this is a great season with spring mm -hmm. coming because the cottonwoods and other things will be sending off their aromatic chemicals. Um, so I think just like experiencing creation with our senses, like which we can't do when we just look very well. When we just look at a picture, we actually have to be outside mm -hmm. in it. But if you think like, I'm going to go for an hour walk every day in creation, that's a 
That's a much. hard bar yeah. to hit well, to for a lot of people. So, <laughs> so even if it's just five minutes um, of awareness, of presence, and like what you were talking about, the beauty, being astonished, or mm-hmm. was it astonished yeah. or astounded? Yeah, astonished, yeah. Astonished, yeah. yeah. I would just see where's my five minutes of astonishment. I was I was riding my bike yesterday outside, which instead of riding inside, um, and riding around Stanley Park and around by the nine o'clock gun. It's amazing how you can still I can remember exactly where uh, the that first smell of spring was there. Mm-hmm. So this that would have been February twenty second, and uh, it meant even more this year, right? Mm-hmm. Like because it wasn't just oh it's it's nice the weather's getting nicer and all. It was like no like seasons are changing and COVID is going to come to an end and yeah. there's brightness coming and it's beautiful. And, and it was astonishing, even, even in the few seconds of, of noting it. Uh, what about the second part then care for creation? So in terms of connecting, what if someone's saying, okay, I want to start in, in learning about environmentalism or in taking some practical steps? What mm-hmm. kind of advice would you give? Yeah, I think, um, there's it's kind of like how much bang do you want for your buck like the Mm -hmm. the things that that are the most environmentally um costly if you will are food what we eat well three things what we eat where we live and how we get from place to place um so the food one i think just becoming just a little bit more aware of what we Mm -hmm. eat um and even more than the organic, non-organic debate is, I think, like how local can we get and um, can we grow a little bit ourselves? So even if we live in an apartment, can I have a little container just to Mm -hmm. grow some salad, some leaves? (laughs) Um, Just even as a little way, like I'm caring for this and I'm feeding myself Mm -hmm. from like the dirt outside my door, even if it's just Mm -hmm. in a little pot. Um, Yeah, and then and could we give up meat once a week or mm. once a day or just looking at our, our habits? If if you go to UBC has a um, this calculator for your ecological footprint. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think you type in like UBC ecological footprint and it will actually measure like based on like wow. what you eat, how far you travel, how big mm. is your house, all these things yeah. like how much land you need, how many acres just to sustain your lifestyle. It's also like how much carbon you put in the atmosphere, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a little sobering because, you know, I did it and I thought, oh, I'm so good. Yeah. I hardly go anywhere. <laughs> I mean, in COVID, we're all doing great, but, yeah. you know, in normal life. Um, and the average American Canadian, Americans are a little bit higher. Um, it's something like 24 um, acres per person. Like Cuba, I think, is like four right. acres or something. Right. per person um so it it, then it'll show you ways that you can cut down Mm. like um instead of that holiday to italy this summer um if you live in vancouver go to the gulf islands or you know like stuff like that like to reduce your impact um so i think though just looking at the rubric of like what do i eat how far do i travel um and how do i get there um and then my house, like, do I need the bigger house right. or can I just... And they could always connect with organizations like yours. 
Well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Are you? We you could. see now. Just speaking with you, I've heard you speak before, and seen, so I I noticed this already. But in speaking with you, I picked this up. The assumption that you seem like a very positive person, um, and one of the things that that one of the motivators in terms of environmental action or whatever can be kind of more the the negative side, right? Like mm-hmm. we better do this or else. We better. Um, are you? Right now, in the world, right now, are you are you generally hopeful, or are you motivated more by that, or is it this, or is mm. it, how does that one play against the other? Gosh, you know, it really depends on the hour of the day. Does in it? the middle of the night, I am not so hopeful. Yeah. I once, I couldn't sleep because of climate change. I woke up and I started Googling books, and I ordered this book by Joanna Macy called Active Hope. Mm. Um, how to solve the mess we're in without going crazy or something like that but it's like i ordered it in the middle of the night because it's like ah so yeah so i think i hold in balance when you say i'm naturally hopeful i think i'm hopeful because i'm i try really hard and i'm not always successful to live in the present moment so the present moment is full of hope because the disaster hasn't happened yet um but then i also know and read climate scientists and um, people who work in biodiversity and see the loss. Um, so I think actually we have to we have to journey with both. We have yep. to journey with the hope that's found in the present moment and the presence of God in that moment. And then we have to journey in a bit of lament because our eyes are open to just what scientists are telling us. And one without the other is one leads to despair, the latter, right. <laughs> yeah. and you're immobilized. But the other one... If you're just like living in the hope, you could it could be pie in the sky and nothing yeah. really happens. Kind of ignorance without moving. I've noticed even in like um, my kids are 23 and 21, and I've noticed in in some people in their kind of age cohort, uh, there can be a tendency to get down about climate change and such. Right? It's yeah. it's not something that I had growing up that this is, but like that middle of the night moment is something shared by many people and including people who aren't working for environmental organizations that yeah. are still feeling like, and, and then it is, and then I've noticed the change comes when, well, you can do something, mm-hmm. you know, you can get up and do, you don't need to despair. You can, you can do something. And so I think yeah. that it's a great way to kind of consider as we, as we wrap up and we're really yeah. grateful for you giving this uh, time today. We know you have other calls to get to uh, one zoom call to the next, to the next. Um, we look <laughs> forward to coming and visiting. Yeah, um, we'll go, go up there with co-host, co-host Ken Bell one day. We'll go up and show us around because <laughs> he likes to show people yeah. around things. And um, and we'll keep posted on other uh, other work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank care. you. Great to be with you.